Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 12. The word of God speaks to us. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Ashley. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to be with you this morning. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. And I am losing my voice. That happened between the 9 and the 11, so that's pretty convenient. Um, So here in a minute, I'm going to pray for us, and I'd love it if you will pray for me that I can make it all the way through this, and I'll pray for us this morning. Man, thanks for coming on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I know for a lot of us, this this is a holiday where all it means is we get a day off, and we get to grill out burgers and smoke meat and have a lot of fun. But I know that for some of you in the room, either because of uh, you're currently in the military or you've got family or friends who, who are in the military or been in the military. This is kind of a significant day culturally. I was talking to my friend, John Murphy, one of my best buddies. He was a sniper for the, the Green Beret uh, and served a few tours overseas. And he was just saying that this is a mixed bag for him. He carries a lot of joy about today, but also some sorrow and some sadness. Uh, both over time overseas, he had friends that died uh, serving our country. And then since coming home, He's had friends that have taken their own life because of the tragedy and pain of war. And so I just want to say, if you are in the military or if you uh, have been in the military, you've got family or friends, man, thank you for your service. And also, would you, yeah, we can, yeah, thank you for your service. Not, not everybody understands. I don't, I don't fully understand, but I'm grateful. I'm really thankful for you. Um, and as today holds a lot of complexity, man, we bless you and we pray for you. And I just want to invite those of us who, who have friends or family or, or whatever in our life, man, text them today and actually pray for them and just say, hey, I'm thinking about you this weekend. I'm praying for you and offer up your love in that way. Sound good? 
Okay, so today is a little bit different. We are taking a break from 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you've been around, we've been slowly working our way through uh, this letter of 1 Corinthians. It's been wild. It's been crazy. We're going to jump back into that next week. But today I wanted to pause. And just as one of your pastors, I wanted to lean into something that I am seeing as an area of growth for our church. This is an area where we need to be a little bit more well-rounded, a little bit more, uh, I think, more biblically informed, get a vision of God's heart for generosity. And, and the hope is that as we see more of God's heart for generosity, we'll be formed into people of generosity. So listen, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I don't want you to hear anything else other than we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Be around. Ask questions. We don't expect anything of you. In fact, any way that we could serve you, we would love to do that. If you're here and you're not a part of this church, we're glad that you're here today. We're, we're really glad that you showed up to Frontline. But this is for those of you who would consider Frontline home. I want to offer you something that I hope will be helpful to just try to shape your vision of generosity as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. So I want to pray for you. I'll pray for us. And also, kids in the room, it's great to have you. I'm so glad you're here. You're way more cool than your parents, and uh, you're always welcome in here. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to, to worship today. Thank you for these kids. God, we pray that you would grow up this church into people of generosity. I love what it says in Acts, that there is not a needy person among them, and that's my prayer for our church, that there would not be a needy person among us. Let that be true, not just something that we read about, of some church and some culture back then, but let that be true of our church today. So would you come and would you move? In Jesus' name, amen. I've said this before, but one of the weirdest things to me about doing church in our cultural moment is the fact that you can leave Google reviews for churches. I just think that's super weird. And I, I know I'm kind of like an old man. I'm like heading towards grandpa faster than I want to admit, but I'll never be okay with this. I will never be okay with the fact that you can leave Google reviews or Yelp reviews for churches. But nevertheless, that's a thing. And Frontline has gotten some Google reviews and Yelp reviews. Let me just read you a few. Some of these are really good, right? Here's a five-star one from uh, Natasha. She says, great sermons, great people. Love this church. They are welcoming, inviting, and make you feel at home here. Lots of opportunities to learn about God, get involved in community, and serve your city. Awesome. Thanks, Natasha. I love that. That's great. I hope that that's true of us. I'm really grateful for that review. Here's, uh, here's a one-star review that we received. <laughs> Awful place. More like a cult than a loving, open-minded church. They break up marriages and relationships. They tell you you're living an evil lifestyle, even when you're not. They're not equipped to counsel a dog, let alone a human. Just an awful place. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Thanks, Tiffany. What Tiffany doesn't know is I am well-loved in the dog community. <laughs> well-loved, but that's for another time. Here, here's, a, here's a weird review we got where it was a five-star review but it went on for like paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs, and it was just weird. This was about Josh Curry, who is our founding and lead pastor of Frontline Downtown. It said the lead pastor, Josh Curry, took the stage with his large black beard to offset his hairless head, <laughs> as well as a suit of some material that wasn't familiar to me. Then he goes on and on and on and on. The experience was memorable, to say the least. I, I don't know what to say, Scott, but we're glad that you're here, right? I could go on. There's reviews. Now, here's why, here's why I give that to you. I want you to think for just a minute. 
if Jesus were to plant a church today in our city and people attended his church week in and week out for a year, two, three years, what types of reviews would they post on Jesus's church on Yelp or on Google? Well, there's probably a lot of things that they would say, but at least one of the comments that would come up again and again is this comment that Jesus tends to talk about money a lot. Pastor Jesus keeps preaching about money. He keeps talking about money. He brings money up all the time. Money makes a frequent uh, appearance in his sermons and in his illustrations. Why is that? Here's what's crazy. Jesus did actually teach on money almost constantly in his three years on earth. Out of Jesus' 38 parables, 16 of them deal directly with money and possessions. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all these different angle accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, here's what's crazy. It's about one out of every 10 verses, 288 in all, that deal directly with the subject of money. If you go through the whole Bible and zoom out, not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not just in the New Testament, but take the whole scriptures, what's fascinating is that there are 500 verses on prayer. Now, how many of you would say prayer is kind of a big deal to the Christian faith, like prayer matters? There's around 500, a little less than 500 verses on faith, also a pretty big deal for Christians. And yet there's over 2,000 verses on money and on possessions. 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, 2,000 or so verses on money and possessions. Why? Why is this talked about so much? By the way, if you're curious, like, oh, you're one of those churches, you talk about money all the time. I don't think I've preached on money in the last 12 months, maybe longer. So this is not like, like I'm doing less than Jesus did, is what I'm trying to say. So why did he talk about money so much? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons. I'll just give you two of them. The first is that money reveals what we value. Money reveals what you and I value. Think of money like this. You have your heart. Your heart sees things. Your heart desires things. Your heart wants things. And money is like an arm that extends out from your heart to reach out and grab what you want. You could write down on a piece of paper your stated values, and then you could look at your posture and your heart towards money and possessions. And what you're going to find is like, it actually doesn't matter much about what you say you value. The, the true test to, to figure out where you stand, what you are after, what you long for, what you want, is how much of your imagination and your life is postured towards money and towards possessions. That's going to tell you what you really value. So I think that's one of the reasons it comes up a lot is because God wants to poke on what we value because often our values are disordered at every level. The second reason why I think scripture talks about money so much is because of this truth. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. In fact, that's almost a direct quote from Jesus in Matthew 6 where he says that. He says, you can't have two masters. You're either gonna serve king Jesus, or you're going to serve king money, but you can't serve both kings at the same time. John Calvin says this. He says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Think about that. It's not that God is not authority. It's not that he's not sovereign or Lord or king, but where money holds the dominion of your heart, it doesn't matter that God is seated on a throne because the throne of your heart is occupied by someone else and you're, you're kind of like just going based on what that king money says. Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. 
So here's what I wanna do today. I wanna talk with you briefly about money, but not just about money. I wanna talk with you about God's heart behind money and what he wants us to do with money as the people of God. How do we interact with things like generosity? And let's get more specific. What should we as Christians today think about this biblical idea of the tithe? What should we think about that? Does that still apply to our lives today? How do we engage that? If so, those are the questions that we're gonna look at. So here's the first question I wanna ask and answer with you. What does the Old Testament teach about the tithe? What does the Old Testament teach about the tithe? Well, the word tithe comes from the Hebrew word ma'aser. Ma'aser just means tenth. So the word tithe just means a tenth. And what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, you see this word tithe show up a lot of different times, not because it's talked about a lot of times, although it is, but because there's actually three different tithes that existed in the Old Testament. Three different tithes that all existed at the same time. So when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them the law, one of the things that God did was he instituted a three-tiered tithe system, a three-tiered tithe system. The first tithe consisted of one-tenth of all of your stuff, your livestock, your produce, your flocks, your cattle, your money, Everything, everything that you owned, everything that you possessed, you would take one-tenth of that and you would give that to the Levites. The Levites would work inside of the tabernacle and then later the temple, and then the Levites would give a tenth of that to the priests. They didn't have a job outside of working inside of the temple, the sacrificial system, offering up animals as sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people. And so imagine, this is a place where the dwelling place of God is with humanity. These Levites and priests are busy at work in the temple. They don't have time to go out and make a living for themselves in any other fashion. And so God instituted the first tithe so that these Levites and priests could have an income, so that they could survive, so that they could make a living. The second tithe, this is probably my favorite tithe, is known as the festival tithe. You ever heard of it? Festival tithe? The festival tithe consisted of one-tenth of the remaining nine-tenths, right? So one-tenth goes to the Levites and priests. You have nine-tenths of your stuff left. And every two out of three years, I know this is kind of confusing, every two out of three years, you would save up your other tenth, another one-tenth of your stuff, and then God would hold this epic party, where literally you would gather in a place, most likely the city of Jerusalem, and you would just throw this epic week-long festival, and it was a way of celebrating the provision of God and the grace of God. I'm not going to read you the text, but you can read about this in Deuteronomy 14. This is like one of my favorite tithes. I sort of feel like we should take this back and do this for Christmas. Can you imagine if like the people of God saved all of their money all year long and they're like, all right, we're just going to buy a bunch of stuff and like feast and celebrate and enjoy God's grace. That's what this tithe was. God said, hey, I want you to feast for a week. Buy whatever you want, wine or beer or cattle and throw a big party and we're going to have this feast. And it's a way of celebrating and remembering my provision and my goodness. This was the festival tithe. Then the third tithe, the third tithe was sometimes referred to as the charity tithe, and this was given every three years. What you would do is every three years, you would save a 10%, and then you would give that to the most poor in Israelite society. So the Levites, the widows, the orphans, the poor, other marginalized people in Israel, Israelite society, every three years, you would give them directly 
this tithe. Now, this is really interesting. This is just the three-tiered tithe system, but there's all these other ways that God commanded his people to be generous. For example, there's an annual census tax that the Israelites would pay to service and maintain the tabernacle and later the temple. And this was a flat tax rate of about two days worth of wages that every person in Israel, whether you were rich or poor, had to pay just to maintain the temple and to repair it or to offer any upgrades that needed to be offered. Then you had every seven years a sabbatical year, and this is wild, where all the debts would be forgiven. So imagine, like, you're getting in financial ruin and the hole is growing and growing and growing. Well, God instituted a system where every seven years the debts would just be completely wiped out and liquidated. How amazing is that? This was a way to keep the poor from getting beyond help in poor and to keep everybody being able to thrive and succeed. And then even beyond that, every 50th year was known as the year of Jubilee. You may have heard about this. The year of Jubilee is fascinating because God commanded that all prisoners, all captives be set free, that everybody's released, all debts are forgiven, and all property be returned to its rightful owner. So imagine every 50 years, if someone had to give away their property and their land because they got in so much debt and they couldn't pay it back, every 50 years, God had almost like a, a giant financial matrix button that he would hit, and it would hit reset on the economy, and everybody would get to start from square one all over again. And this is really interesting. Like, this changes your perspective a little bit of God's perspective on money and generosity, where he didn't want the rich to get so rich that they were beyond helping the poor, and he didn't want the poor to get so poor that they were beyond being able to thrive in society. So God set up this unique thing called the tithe in other ways that the people of Israel would be generous. And that's not to mention all the ways that God is then saying, oh, and by the way, when you personally run into someone who is poor, open up your hand in generosity to them. Let me give you an example of this. This is in Deuteronomy 15. It says, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, I love this line. He says, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Let me just pause there. I think this is a corrective word for us. I think that some of us in this room have hardened our heart and, sh- and closed our hand to the poor among us. And God here is saying, if someone among you is poor, don't harden your heart to them. Don't judge them. Don't assume that you know everything about their story. Don't assume that you know how they got there. He's saying, don't shut your heart out. In fact, open up your hand. Notice what he says. He says, you shall open up your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. So what does he say? There's never, never cease to be the poor, so just throw up your hands and forget about it. No, there, there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So there's all these ways that God commanded his people to be generous, and the tithe was a big part of that three-tiered system. Now, it's really challenging for us as Western Christians because when you and I hear tithe, we just think 10%. 
But when you add up all three of these tithes together, not to mention all the ways that God commanded his people to be generous, it comes out to be about 23.3% of the average Israelite income every year was given in tithes. 23.3% was given in tithes. And all of this begs the question, why? Why such an emphasis on tithing and giving? Why was this so a part of the heart of God for his people? Why does he care? Well, here's what I would say. If money reveals what we value and where our heart is, then the tithe reveals what God values and where his heart is. God actually instituted the tithe, not because he was in need, not because he wanted us to fund his ministry, not because he really is like relying on us to come through for him financially. As the Psalms say, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. All things exist by him and through him and for him. And without, any, without him, nothing exists that exists. He owns everything. And yet, why such an emphasis on the tithe? Well, here's why. Because God actually wanted us to be shaped and formed around money and his heart to shape and form us rather than money shape and form our heart or disorder our heart. And specifically, here's why God did this. God gave money for at least two big reasons. He gave money for us to be a gift and to be a tool. He gave money for us to be a gift and to be a tool. I love what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The apostle Paul tells Timothy, he says, hey, if there's any wealthy among you, and it's easy for us to hear that and think of like certain people who are wealthy, but actually if you look at the global population today, virtually everybody in this room would be considered wealthy. Not everybody, but most of us would be considered wealthy by global standards today. So listen, if any one of us is wealthy, which is most everybody in the room, the Apostle Paul says, don't become haughty, but actually realize that God has given you everything to enjoy. I love that line. If you have wealth in the room, if you have money in your bank account, if you've got a retirement plan, if you've got nice cars or a house, hey, if you've got a pool in your backyard, praise be to God for that, right? It's about to be 140 degrees in Oklahoma. You really can't survive in Oklahoma without a pool. Some of us are doing it. I don't know how we're doing it, but we're managing. We're making it by. But you really need a pool. You guys have a pool. Praise be to God. Don't walk in your backyard and be sad or, you know, you know, guilty that you have a, man, God has gifted you with money and stuff and you've got a pool. What does Paul go on to tell Timothy? Don't be haughty, enjoy what God has given you, but also share it with those who are in need. So those of you at the pool, please invite us over. Please, please let us come swim. It's hot here. We're all dying. We need to, we need to be invited to your pool. Do you see the point? The point is like God has given us what he has because he wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to celebrate it, but also he wants us to share all that we have. So whatever he's given you, enjoy it, but also see it as a gift to be shared. Amen? The, the second reason why God gave money is to be a tool. And specifically, money is not an arm for you to reach out and grab all the stuff that you want for yourself. But money specifically is an arm reached out to offer love and blessing and grace and provision and help to those who are in need. Money is not an extension for you to get your desires as much as money is an extension for you to offer the heart of God to those around you. And here's what's really crazy, and this might bother some of you, but it's true, that the way that you treat the poor in our society today is the way that you will be held accountable for how you treated God himself. In fact, God saw himself so enmeshed and connected with the poor that 
your treatment of the poor and my treatment of the poor is your same exact way that you're treating God himself. This is why God cares about the tithe so much because the tithe was meant to serve as a funnel for ministry and mission so that the Levites and the priests could use these resources to bless those in Israel who had need. This is a really big deal. In fact, the, there's this parable that Jesus gives in the New Testament called the separation of the sheep and the goats, where literally he says that when he returns, he will judge people, he will judge his church based on how they treated the poor and those who are suffering in our society. And then he says, if you didn't feed them, you didn't feed me. If you didn't clothe them, you didn't clothe me. In other words, if you have a heart posture that's one of negativity towards the poor, one of like, well, they got there because it's their fault, and if they just would apply themselves and try like I did and make the most of their life like I did, then they wouldn't be in that position. Well, actually, the heart of God would say, if your heart posture is one of judgment and negativity and closed-handedness towards the poor, then that's how you're treating Jesus himself, and he's going to judge you for it. That's what he says. And the way that you treat the poor, serving them, offering your life to them, offering possessions and money to them, that's the way that you're treating Jesus himself. Which is why we read this in Malachi chapter 3, one of the most uh, misunderstood, abused texts about money that's ever been quoted. God says this, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God doesn't care about food in his house for the sake of having food in his house. Why does he want food there? Because there's hungry people in Israel and God wants those hungry people to be given bread. He says, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no, until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field so not to fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, when we fail to offer God what rightly belongs to him so that it can go to the poor, we're robbing God himself. That's why this text says what it says. And that leads me to the third question, so what does the New Testament teach about the tithe? The Old Testament is abundantly clear that the tithe is a command that applies to Israelite life. You have to tithe, and if you fail to tithe, you're robbing God. So what about us today? Those of us who are followers of Jesus that live in the New Testament, is that same three-tiered system applicable to us today? Well, interesting, interestingly, the New Testament says very little about the tithe. In fact, the only time the tithe is mentioned is just a handful of times by Jesus himself. And whenever Jesus mentions the tithe, he's actually doing so as a mockery and a rebuke to the religious leaders of his day. He comes to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and what was happening is that they were tithing out of their spice rack, right? And Jesus is making fun of them for it. He's like, you guys tithe out of your spice rack, like cinnamon and cumin and coriander and whatever else, you know, zatarins, whatever you keep in your spike. He's like, you guys are tithing out of that stuff. Also, you're forgetting the biggest heart that I had was for mercy and justice, and you're neglecting mercy and justice, but you're tithing out of your spice rack. He's like, your, your priorities are all out of whack. In other words, God is saying to the Pharisees, hey, I don't care that you're keeping the little things because you've missed the big thing. 
You've missed the big thing. I'd rather you keep the big thing and not just these little bitty laws. So the only time that we see the tithe even mentioned is by Jesus, and it's always in a, uh, a stance of mockery towards the religious leaders. And then what you see happening in the book of Acts is something radically different, where you don't see the tithe happening. It's never mentioned in any New Testament epistle. What you see happening is even more radical in terms of generosity. Let me just read you a section of Acts chapter 2. This is when the Holy Spirit fell on the church and the early church is birthed. And what began to happen was all this gospel movement that was just unexplainable apart from the Holy Spirit working and moving in the church. It says this in Acts 2, 44. And all who believed were together, and I love this line, and they had all things in common. Now, that doesn't mean that they all voted the same, that they all liked the same shows, that they all ate at the same restaurants, they all shopped at the same clothing stores. No, having all things in common meant that all of my stuff was our stuff, and all of your stuff was our stuff. We have all things in common, right? Then it goes on to say this, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were so captivated by God's heart for generosity that they weren't concerned about this three-tiered tithe system. They didn't need a law put in place for them to carry out their heart of generosity. They were just like, I've got a, I've got a house I can sell. I've got stuff I can give away. And they were doing that for the benefit of the church. And then we read this in Acts chapter 4. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And I love this. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Can you imagine if that happened at Frontline South, where we started to look at each other and say, hey, man, like, my house doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Jesus. My car doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Jesus. The stuff that I have It actually isn't mine. Like, it's been gifted to me by Jesus. So whatever I have and whatever you need, it's yours here. And and look at what went on. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I love this line. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of land or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, certainly, this is not communism. This is not Christian communism. They weren't forced to do it. Uh, Obviously, some people kept their houses because the early church gathered in what? Houses. So not everybody did this, right? But as people felt compelled, they were just selling their stuff, their possessions, giving away their homes, giving away their whatever, so that this line could be true. There is not a needy person among them. One of the things that I pray for our church, like really consistently, one of the things that I pray for you is that there would not be a needy person among us, that that would be true of us, that that wouldn't just be something that we read about from some bygone era of awesome church history, but that we could have a church culture today in the middle of Oklahoma City, in the middle of a culture like ours, where literally people that are a part of this church are like, yeah, like every time I have a need, it gets provided. Every time I've ran up into an issue or couldn't, you know, do this or something happened, like God's people have come through and God has been generous to me through his people. 
I pray for that for us. Can you imagine how powerful of a witness to the testimony of Jesus that that would be in our city where we stop valuing money and possessions and it almost becomes like useless to us other than how we can offer it in service to other people? What a vision for life. What a vision for money. How did they get this way? It's because Jesus offered his very life to the church and they were overwhelmed by the generosity of Jesus offering his very life to them when they needed spiritual truth, they needed spiritual grace, they needed spiritual life, and they were spiritually bankrupt. Jesus, who is rich in all those things, became poor so that they could become rich. And that captured their heart to make them into generous people. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the early church grew so rapidly in the middle of a Roman context. A lot of scholars and church historians have tried to pinpoint, why did the early church grow so rapidly? This is one of the reasons why. Uh, Roman Emperor Julian was really upset at the generosity of Christians because he was making him and other Roman uh, government officials look bad. So he wrote a letter to his friend, and in that letter he said this. He said, do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? It is disgraceful that the Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well, while everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. In other words, saying the Roman government, like we suck at offering uh, care for and, and, and provision for the poor. These Christians are coming along and they're caring for their own poor and everybody else's poor. Unbelievable. How are they doing this? The late Tim Keller, who I absolutely love, absolutely adore, have, have cried harder for him and his death than I have for almost any pastor that I know that's died recently. I love this man. Tim Keller wrote about the generosity of the church, and here's what he said. He said, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money, and I love this, and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money, but practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. In, a middle, in the middle of a sexually promiscuous culture, the early church was saying, hey, we're, we're gonna be sexually faithful. We're not gonna give our body to anybody outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman, but we're gonna be, we're gonna be financially promiscuous. And that was the problem with the early church. They could not keep their wallets in their pants, right? Yes, I said that. It, there it is. They couldn't, they, and, and if you don't like it, you can leave a review on Google. There's other people have done the same. They, they were so willing to just offer up what they had to anyone as had need. And that was countercultural then. Hey, friends, that would be just as countercultural in our society today. Can you imagine if we're like not sexually promiscuous, but radically financially promiscuous? What would that do for the testimony of Jesus in our city? Now that leads me to the next question. What does God expect Christians to give today? And this is maybe where your mind is headed. Like, let's just ask the question straight out. Does God expect me to tithe today? What's the amount, Andrew? That's what you're want wanting to know. What am I called to give? What am I supposed to give? How much? Well, it doesn't work that way. The Apostle Paul summarizes God's heart for Christians in that beautiful text that we've already read, 2 Corinthians 9. Listen again with fresh ears and eyes. It says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Isn't that frustrating? Hey, how much should I give? Just decide in your heart. Well, how much is that? Yeah, just decide in your heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. I can't like force you. I can't put a burden on you. It's like you just decide in your heart. For God loves a cheerful giver. That's like cherry on top. Oh, by the way, whatever you give, you have to do it with a lot of joy in your heart because God doesn't really care about you just giving to give. He cares about you being joyful in your generosity, being cheerful. Because God, I, I love that it says God loves a cheerful giver. It's like, yeah, he loves everybody, but he really loves a cheerful giver. Isn't that amazing that it says that? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Friends, here's the point. All that you have is like seed for sowing. And this verse is all twisted and abused by TV preachers who are like wearing very expensive suits and you know, the, the, the jet is humming in the background as they're calling for the offering plates to be passed. And we know it's weird. We know it's rigged. We know the whole thing is like totally crazy. But here, here's what this verse is actually saying, that God has given all that we have to be seed for sowing a harvest of righteousness. And the point is not, if you give a lot, God is gonna give you more money so that you can be rich. That's not the point. The point is, hey, if you give a lot, God will continue to provide things for you to give away. He will continue to provide your seed for sowing into a harvest of righteousness so that two things will happen. The needs of the saints will get met and God will have many thanksgivings come his way. This is for worship for God and for the saints to have what they need. So here's the point, friends. In the New Testament, I would argue that the idea of giving in proportion to what you have seems to replace this idea of the tithe. David Garland says, the tithe puts all the focus on how much one is required to give and allows one to ignore how much is kept for oneself. Some can give far more than the tithe and have more than enough to provide all the necessities of life. Others barely have two mites for their daily needs. So I would just say you as a Christian individual, you if you're married with your family, spend time praying and processing and evaluating your giving and ask hard questions. And I would just point out like if the Old Testament Israelites who did not know about the grace of God that would be revealed for us in Jesus Christ, who didn't know about the giving of the Holy Spirit, who didn't know about all the amazing things that God was going to offer us through Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection, his future coming kingdom. If they didn't know about all that stuff and they gave 23.3% on average, it should at least be a challenge challenge to us, shouldn't, shouldn't it? Like if they gave that much, shouldn't we at least be challenged to figure out what we might give as people who know more of the story than they did? Now, here's a question that needs to be answered before we close. Should Christians give to the local church? Should Christians give to the local church? In other words, am I expected by God 
to give to a specific local church, or do I have freedom and flexibility to oversee where I want those funds to go? Maybe there's a mission organization that I'm passionate about. Maybe there's a specific individual in my life that I want to serve. Maybe there's some venture out there that I want to fund or whatever, a cause, an organization. Can I do that, or does it have to run through the local church? This is a really strategic, important question, and I just want to answer it as carefully as I know how to. What I would want you to do is take a look again at the New Testament and try to figure out if there was ever any instance of any individual that was primarily giving what they were giving and overseeing the funds themselves. Was there any instance in the New Testament where they were offering what they had to a specific individual and bypassing the whole process of laying it at the feet of certain apostles or elders in a local church for those apostles and elders to then decide collectively and prayerfully how best to use these funds given the varied needs of the saints. What you see happening in the New Testament is that virtually all of the giving was funneled through church leadership, where they were handing it to the church and saying, hey, you know the needs, you know the things that need to be met. And then what was happening is those leaders were funneling those resources to care for the poor, to care for eligible widows, to bring relief aid for churches and people experiencing hardships and natural disasters, to help the elders get financially supported in the ministry, and to plant new churches and fund missionary endeavors. Suffice it to say that the only thing that you see happening in the New Testament where it's an individual giving to another individual is just with poor people that they're interacting with on a day-to-day basis where they open up their hand to generosity. All the other giving that happens funnels through the church to the needs in the city. And I just want to say as lovingly as I know how to say, like I think one of the issues that we're coming up against in Western culture today is we are so obsessed with rugged individualism that even it takes on Christian motifs at times where it's like, well, I don't want to give to the church because I don't know where the money goes. I want to give where I know where every dime of it goes and I get to oversee it directly and I get to decide directly. And I'm not saying that that's all bad, but I just want to challenge that perspective a little bit to say, why the lack of trust in church leadership? Like, why, why the lack of, like, why don't you sit down with your pastors and say, hey, where does this money go? How do you use it? How do you see things? Because maybe, just maybe, the church leaders that are actually leading and serving the church see things that other people don't see or are aware of needs that not everybody's aware of or has things that they're trying to support for the cause of Jesus and for the sake of the mission that maybe is not immediately aware to you. And I would just want to challenge that perspective a little bit. So put us to work. If you're a member of Frontline and you want to meet with any of our pastors and sit down and get a, a, a grid for how we use the resources that we use, I'd be more than happy. And I think that you would, be, you would actually be really uh, amazed at how careful and thoughtful we are with the money that this church gives to serve the poor, to plant and strengthen churches, and to do the things that we see happening in the New Testament. Sound good? Okay, so how does Frontline think of giving? Three things as we close. Tithes, alms, and offerings. That's how we should give. Tithes, and I would just say like it's still a biblical concept that's helpful. If you don't know where to start, 10% is a great place to start. Or if you're like, I can't do that, I do, do what is in your heart to do. But regular sacrificial giving to the church, that's what we call tithes. Alms, on the other hand, are intentional gifts to the poor. When you see someone in our city or someone in your community group or someone in your neighborhood or someone that you know that is in need, open up your hand and meet the need if you're able to. Those are alms, intentional gifts to the poor. 
And then the third category is offerings. Occasionally as a church, we will take up a large offering. You see this happening in the New Testament. We do this every year. Um, we, we do this in December at our Christmas Eve service to intentionally care for the poor in our midst. We take up a big offering called the Compassion Offering, and every dime that's given goes directly towards alleviating poverty or meeting needs in our city and all around the world. That's how we think of giving. Now, I'm going to close uh, like this. My, I remember years and years ago, my, my daughter, who now has grown into a profoundly generous little girl. She's awesome, and she's generous, and it's so fun to watch. But when she was a little girl, uh, we had some friends come to our house and stay with us. And there was a girl her age that was staying with us, and she was really struggling with sharing her favorite toys with this girl. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you kids in the room or parents if you've ever witnessed this scenario, but she was like on the verge of tears, on the verge of a a meltdown because she did not want this girl to play with her stuff. So I pulled my daughter off to the side and I said, hey, everything that we have, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. Like I bought that toy for you, but God gave me the money to buy that toy for you. And guess what? This whole house belongs to God. Your toys belong to God. Everything that you have belongs to God. We need to be generous with our stuff. And with tears streaming down her face, she looked at me and she said, Papa, I want to be a generous person. I just don't want to give away anything that I like. (laughs) And it's like right when she said that, the Holy Spirit thumped me on the back of the head. Like, does that sound familiar? It's like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I want to be a generous person. Like if you were to list out qualities that I want to be said about, I want to be a generous person. I just don't want to give away anything that I like. I, I just don't want to like make a sacrifice. I want to be generous, but I also have certain things on my Amazon wish list that I'm saving for, right? How do we grow from people who are naturally greedy and to people who are naturally generous. Here's how. Here's how. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Would you stand with me? Hey, friends, God the Father was generous to the point of giving a son. God the Son was generous to the point of giving his own body to be broken for us and his blood to be shed for us. The more we drink deeply of the gospel, the more we think about and meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus, the more we think about how spiritually poor we were, man, we we were spiritually bankrupt. We didn't have anything to offer. And God in the middle of our poverty, he came to us and though he was rich, he became poor so that we could become spiritually rich. That changes us, doesn't it? That changes us. That's the only reason why we could, any of us, be generous. So please hear this, not as a sermon about like trying to like fund Frontline's budget. I don't care about that, man. Like this is a sermon about how do we grow out of our greed And by God's grace, become generous people so that there will not be a needy person among us. That's what this is about. So, man, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we love that you're here. It's an honor to have you. 
don't come and receive this meal because this is a meal of faith. This is a meal of repentance and trust in Jesus. We are saying Jesus is our king. If Jesus is not your king and you're not living a life for him, then this is not a meal for you. We love that you're here. Just be here and ask good questions, right? Be in a community group. Talk about, talk with one of us about what you heard today. All of that's welcome. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, your hope and faith is in Christ, man, would you come and receive this meal today and just ask God, like, help me grow into a generous person. Help me grow into a person that learns to hold all that I have loosely, right? Help me to enjoy what you've given me and also to give what you've given me. So whenever you're ready, friends, you're, you're welcome. Come grab the bread, grab the cup. Do this in groups today. Pray that God would work generosity in your heart and then we'll send you in just a minute.